David Nefeld invites us over to his restaurant, Kefiko. We're in restaurant now, and we're having a great time learning about everything that makes him passionate, makes the restaurant sing, and hearing all about the experience that they're creating. And I encourage all of you to come dine at Kefiko. Thank you so much for having us here in your beautiful restaurant, David. Uh, Kifiko is a super hot restaurant, and I was here last Thursday, and I'm delighted to sit here. It's gorgeous. But there's, that's a cool word, Kifiko. Can you tell us what that means? Well, you just said it. it uh, it's, well, it's a slang term, oh. uh, and it actually means how cool. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. Uh, and <clears throat> the literal translation means what a fig. And that's uh-huh. kind of a calling card to our wallpaper of figs. Uh-huh. And also California produce and, and, you know, a product that we really love working with. But the slang term was what endeared it to us. And we just quite literally thought, that's cool. How cool. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, how you, cool. can't, you can't help Jeez. but say it. That's good. And um, we were just talking about one of, uh, it's one of our mutual friends, too, uh, um, the guy who helped design this. Mm-hmm. Um, how involved were you with the design of the restaurant? So John De La Cruz is the uh, is the designer of our restaurants, and you know, we would not have been able to work with a designer who would not collaborate well with us. You know, mm-hmm. Matt Brewer, my partner, and I. Uh-huh. We had very very strong opinions about what we wanted and what we didn't want. A part of the luster of this space mm-hmm. is the natural found object mm-hmm. feeling to it. And we wanted a designer who wasn't going to come and try and over-design. Mm-hmm. Uh, and John is a master of listening to what the client wants. And through you know some form of iteration and back and forth process, he puts his stamp on it and he puts his fingerprint on it. And when you see a John De La Cruz design space, there is, a, there is an inherent DNA that he has within his designs. Mm-hmm. But you can kind of tell when somebody just says to John, like, hey, go nuts. Like, we want this designed for, you know, for just like the most opulent, beautiful, mm-hmm. you know, perfect space. Or if someone really had an opinion and you can still see John's fingerprint on it, but it's, I think, much more interesting, right? Because then it becomes a work of art in the sense of you can't recreate that feel of two or three people collaborating together and creating something special. It comes, you know, you'll never recreate the space. You'll never recreate mm-hmm. the time and the feeling. And it's one of those things. You never step in the same river twice. I like that saying. Yeah. <laughs> that is good. Oh, so... Oh, here in the restaurant, what part is you and Matt driving, and where, where are his fingerprints? Where are John's fingerprints? Well, that's the beauty of it. It's not so compartmentalized where mm. it's like, oh, that's Matt, and that's me, and that's John. You know, really, a lot of it is us arguing, the three of us arguing back and forth and back and forth. Is you know, we, we would like wallpaper and this is the wall, what we want the wallpaper to look like. And, you know, I would bring John a photo 
of a wallpaper I really liked. And he would say, oh, well, you have lovely taste. That's Hermes wallpaper. Uh, uh-huh. You can't afford that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I would say, okay, well, something like that, right? And then John would go and he would draw something. Mm-hmm. and then bring it back to Matt and myself. And then Matt and I would go back and forth with him as, is this the right scale? Is this the right size? Mm-hmm. And then John would do what any great designer does, which is disregard some of your feelings. Um, <laughs> and, and at the same time, take into consideration some of your feelings, right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. at the end of the day, if you wanted to design the space yourself, you would design the space yourself. Correct. You're yeah. bringing someone like John De La Cruz into the space yeah. to help you find your vision, right? And um, I think a lot of people in our industry have strong feelings about what they want representing them, right? Because they have to live in the space ultimately every Mm -hmm. single day. And I think John is just one of those people who he is um, very empathetic. Mm -hmm. He understands what people want. Um, You know, and he has his, his quirks and his way of doing things and his method of madness. But, you know, John has become a lifelong friend to Matt and myself because of our process. And, and it felt really natural and it felt special. And, and, you know, for what it's worth, I think we ended up with something really great. I do, too. Uh, how long has the restaurant been open? It's been open for about a year and a couple months. So we just celebrated our year anniversary in March. Yeah. And that was a really special thing for us because it took us around four years to really? complete the entire project. And this place used to be a... Girl, auto body auto shop. Auto body shop, okay. Yeah. That's what I was telling uh, Robbie just a little bit ago. My buddy Ed and I ate here on Thursday, sat over by the bar. It was beautiful. It was good times, it's, good food. It's one the of lamb the, was delicious. Oh, good. I'm so glad you like it. And, uh, you know, I love when people love the food, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, obviously I'm a chef, and for me, the, when people love the food, that's... It's a personal compliment to me. It feels very nice. But I enjoy more than that when people tell me that the overall experience for them was very special or engaging because, you know, our service team was especially, you know, on point or the ambiance, right? Which, you know, we will create as much... uh, social lubricant if you will like the music and Uh the space and the lighting but it's up to the people to create the ambiance right Mm -hmm. and that buzz and that like hum in the room Mm -hmm. it brings the energy right and so Mm -hmm. i think it is a little bit of a give and take between the guest and myself and the service team and matt Mm -hmm. and and whoever else is involved in that moment right so um when people say that their entire experience was something memorable like to me that's the ultimate compliment because i feel like that's something you know i can cook every single day of the year right um my team i'm fairly um i'm fairly certain my team can execute all the time or or most of the time i saw you over there directing you know so much of what was going on on thursday I i was hoping to grab your attention just to say hey see you next you know, Monday, uh, but I could see how intense it is. You know, you're, you're monitoring each plate. Um, you've got a big restaurant here. How many seats are in the, in the restaurant? So properly in the restaurant is 100 seats, roughly, and then we have 20 seats at the bar, and we have a 16-person private dining room. Yeah, so you've got a lot of movement. Yeah, well, and we just opened our second restaurant downstairs, Kefiko Elementari, which is, is also... <laughs> uh, going at full steam at this you point. You four weeks. You just yeah. surpassed four weeks as of this recording. Yes. Um, 
So that's all very exciting. But I could see how much, how much concentration you were, um, you know, you were giving to the process. Uh, you know, can you walk me through what a what a what a day is? And then the second question is going like, what what's a full day for you, David? And then and then what are you doing to recharge? That's probably interesting to listeners and, and to me too. Sure. Um, you know. Without being disingenuous, uh, you know, at this point in my career, my days have a huge variance, mm -hmm. right? When we're opening a restaurant, as we just got done doing, you know, my days consisted of working on the line because staffing is incredibly hard to find. And even when you do find staffing, you're not sure that they fit necessarily your, your culture or your brand or, you know, whatever array of things and so my day for the past month has consisted of myself my chef de cuisine Evan our couple of our sous chefs um, JD and Jasmine coming in together in the morning and prepping the stations ourselves mm -hmm. um, and Angela Pinkerton our, our, our partner downstairs working in the bakery and us essentially doing the production of the kitchen ourselves and then going into service and working service mm -hmm. and then scrubbing down the line and getting out at, you know, one thirty in the morning. But that's not meant to be really what my day is. And, you know, as of a few days ago, you know, I was pulled off my station and we staffed that station and, uh -huh. and you know, I got back to kind of what my day is supposed to look like, which, you know, sometimes it will be me you know, getting up in the morning and, you know, firing off emails, you know, to, <laughs> to some of my team's chagrin. And, uh -huh. you know, there's just there's time where, you know, computers don't work for me as a workflow uh -huh. that often, you know, so it really has to be a specific time. So in the morning, sometimes it's at two o'clock in the morning. Sometimes it's when I wake up, you know, at seven or eight. Uh, I have a four month old at home, so we'll wake up you know, to feed the baby or, you know, just to get our day started. And I'll pull my computer out and I'll just start firing off emails. And a lot of those are me going through emails that people sent and I'm finally responding to them. And a lot of them are just me having my coffee in the morning and saying, oh, hey, light bulb, this is mm -hmm. an idea and I need to get it out to my team. Mm -hmm. And eventually we'll kind of start rolling on it. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I'll get into the restaurant around, you know, 10 a.m. or so. Uh, I make a point to try and say hello to every single person in the building. So they know that, you know, first of all, I appreciate the fact that they're there with yeah. me. Yeah. And also so they also recognize there's an element of accountability uh, for myself included. Right. When we all know that we're there, we all know that we're working towards a goal. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it creates that accountability of, OK, hey, you know, we're all we're all here. We're all spending our time together. It's not just like it's not just you. It's not just me. Right. We're all doing this. Yeah. And then, you know, throughout the day, we'll have management meetings. We'll have, you know, we'll be putting on new dishes uh, because of the nature of our cuisine, which is, you know, Italian through the California lens. You know, mm -hmm. we'll go to the farmer's market three or four times a week. So, for example, after we're done doing this, this is a Tuesday afternoon or this is a Tuesday morning. We're going to leave to the Berkeley farmer's market at noon to go pick up produce for today and tomorrow. That's killer. Yeah. And then. Thursday, we're at the Marin Farmer's Market at yeah. 8 o'clock in the morning. And Saturday, we're at the Ferry it's Building. It's a bay-wide adventure yeah. <laughs> all week. 
So the who's who of farmers market? That's yeah, where you're course. at. And well, and that's and that's what makes me happiest. Um, spending We're time at the farmers. To, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, we'll, I'll go with my chef de cuisine, Evan, mm. and my dog Cassidy. <laughs> nice, Cassidy. <laughs> and uh, we, you know, we will go to the market, and that's a lot of times how the menu will get written. Uh-huh. We'll be walking around, and we'll say, okay, hey, l- look, we've we've recognized now that stone fruits are starting to come in. Let's start uh-huh. tasting them. Okay, these are exceptional now. They need to be on the menu now, right? Yeah. So we will go and write dishes specifically to get a, sp- a certain farm on the menu. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then we basically will get back, and that's when the hustle and bustle starts. You know, people will start coming in, setting up the dining room, more and more cooks show up, and then all of a sudden you feel the buzz. You know, the, the stereos blaring, you know, people are getting into their mode, people are rolling pasta, the butchers working furiously, sauces are bubbling, and, uh-huh. you know, we're getting up to that moment where, you know, which is, you know, lights are on. Yeah, and, it's and kind of like a... Uh, a production. A, yeah, a theater it, production. Yeah, it very much is, and that's, and that's what working in a restaurant is every single day. You're getting ready for your theater production, yeah. Everybody's, you know, especially in an open kitchen, right? You know, a lot of mm-hmm. what people are coming to see is the experience. They, a Gosh. lot of people notice what we're doing up there, the orchestration, the cooking, the, the vibe. Mm-hmm. And I think the vibe plays a major role into why we're successful. You know, mm-hmm. I think that we really, really try and engage our guests, but also we try and engage each other, you know, the team. Uh, if my team is riffing with one another yeah. and they're having an inside joke or they're enjoying themselves uh-huh. and the food is coming out yeah. amazingly, you know, I really, really try not to get in the middle of it, right? You know, because they're doing something. There's some magic there that's happening as they're riffing, as they're engaging, they're having mm-hmm. fun together. Mm-hmm. Um, that's making the food so spectacular in that moment, right? Um, the time that I'll get involved is when I feel like the train is starting to go off the the rails and people are not engaging with the food and they're not engaging with the process. And, uh-huh. and like you said, you what know, do you do to do try to implement some more joy? You know, a part of sometimes it's implementing joy. Sometimes it's implementing focus, right? Like uh-huh. uh, if anyone's taken a yoga class before, sometimes the, the, the guide or the teacher or whatever uh-huh. you want to call them, um, you know, sometimes their job is just to remind you to breathe. Uh, uh-huh. Sometimes their job is to recenter your thoughts, right? Like, where are your thoughts? Are they outside of the room? Or are they inside the room, right? Um, and then sometimes it's, you know, it's changing position, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, you know, sometimes my, sometimes I'll see an opportunity to insert joy, right? Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes the opportunity is not there, right? We're we're in it and we're really intense, and maybe a lot of mistakes are happening. And my job is not to implement joy, but it's to implement focus, right? And so- uh, and I, I have this uh, begging question here because I read this really awesome article in preparation for sitting down with you. It told me so much about you. I, you know, I have other questions about it, but what I was wondering is like how you seem to really want to win. Like it's like you're working hard. You got the four month old to just open the second restaurant. What's driving you to just uh, kind of do your best? Because that's what I'm. Le- of hearing through this article I read and, and even sitting down with you now. Tell me. Ambition. Yeah. And, and, and uh, why, you know? You know, the thing is, my f- parents came here and risked everything in their lives. You know, they came as uh, refugees from the former USSR and they left quite literally in the, <laughs> in the night. <laughs> they yeah. got onto trains and they, you know, there was kind of 
you would have to lie and say you were going to Israel at that time, you uh -huh. know, to leave. Uh -huh. And you could not say you were going to the United States. That was, I mean, uh, by all means forbidden. Right. What year would that have been? 1979. Uh -huh. So when they left. Oh, right. When, once they got to the United States, it was 1980. Mm -hmm. And so they had my brother in tow. And, you know, they're on a dark train <laughs> heading through, you know, the eastern, uh, you know, the Baltic states and stuff like that and mm -hmm. to get into uh, Western Europe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my mom tells this story of, you know, when she's on the train. It's very, very nerve-wracking. It's nighttime. Uh, they're stopping at different stops, and there's Russian soldiers coming on, and they're, mm -hmm. you know, they have their their dogs, and it's, it's intimidating. There's guns. Yeah. And, you know, finally they cross the border into one of the neighboring countries that's not a part of the USSR. And on the train it's known it's widely known that a lot of the people on the train are jewish and they're uh -huh. le they're leaving the ussr to escape kind of you know religious persecution, persecution yeah. at that time and they're going looking for uh, refugee status uh in israel was kind of the approved nation state that you could go mm -hmm. to and as they cross the border um, you know, the Russian soldiers kind of come on, do the last check, check everyone's paperwork, and then they come off. And then, you know, that country's soldiers come on, check, and make sure that you're allowed to be going and then come off. As the train leaves the, the border... This, after the second, after the second group of soldiers yes. went in and, 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 and they come off. Yeah. And then they, they'll go, they, the train would go about, you know, a mile or so and then slow down. And mm -hmm. as it slows down, there's men in plain clothes with, uh, with fully automatic weapons mm -hmm. that would get onto the train. And they, would, they wouldn't engage with any of the people there, and they would be, but they were on the train at the time. And, you know, my, my mother has no idea who it is, and, and someone, you know, people start, you know, whispering to each other. And, you know, it comes to pass that this is, um, this is the Israeli Defense Force. Get Ow, I'm shivering right now. Yeah, shivering. Who, that's who, crazy. I the, wondered. Yeah, and they're coming to, to make sure that these people are traveling safely, safely yeah. and not going to be harassed. <clears throat> and this is the first time my mom has ever experienced in life someone there to be in her defense. Protector, yeah. And so... You know, a lot. Uh, there's a lot of stories like that, and you know, there were a lot of stories like that in my uh -huh. childhood of you know my father having to kind of go through um, what what was known as like what we would know as a project, right? But they're like in the USSR, projects were normal. They weren't like necessarily rife with crime or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, there's government assisted housing. Yeah, well, everything was government assisted. Okay, everything yeah. was government owned, right? It's mm -hmm. it's communism at that time. So mm -hmm. even your furniture was government owned. So everything was exactly the same. So it would be project housing and you'd be walking through the middle and, you know, you'd be walking through an unfriendly one to Jews and people would start throwing bottles at you and calling you, mm -hmm. you know, derogatory terms for Jews and <clears throat> Jews and and things of that nature. So as I grew up, I heard a lot of these stories, and I felt that because of my parents' sacrifice and because of what they went through to put to give my brother and I the opportunity to be here and be Americans, mm -hmm. I've felt this responsibility to do something special. And that's, um, and that's what makes you email at 2 a.m. when you think of it and get up at 7 a.m. And, and crush it again. I mean, I, I think just part of that is ADD. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and that's not, uh, I don't say that in kind of just, yeah. you know, I, um, I think really 
ADD has played a major role in my workflow. You know, I wasn't very successful in school growing up because I don't think they were able to, you know, school, public school in the United States is a one size fits all type of thing. And if mm -hmm. it doesn't fit you, then, then it doesn't work for you. I was very lucky that my mom kind of dragged me kicking and screaming through uh, my process in school. And then once I was done, you know, uh, many times I would ask my parents, like, you know, what made you not give up? And both of their answer at the same time was, we knew that once we got you out of school, you'd be fine. You, you had the, you know, the will, you had the work ethic, because I had a job from the age of 13 that mm -hmm. I would be working in kitchens constantly. Mm -hmm. the, uh, if I got involved in a sport, you didn't have to force me to get out of bed at 4.30 in the morning to go to swim practice, right? Mm -hmm. Like those were things that I naturally was engaged in and I knew how to succeed in them. And school just never made sense for me. Mm -hmm. So I think my, with my parents, it was just a thing of them saying, we knew that once you found something, you'd be fine, but school wasn't gonna work for you. So we needed mm -hmm. to get you out. So you didn't get caught up in the system. So I think that my workflow is just, a part of it is by virtue of, you know, the way my brain works. You mm -hmm. know, I need to be, in a lot of ways, for me to be on a computer, I need to be partially exhausted. Uh, because then my brain slows down slightly and I can actually start getting thoughts out that way. Mm -hmm. If not, I need to be moving all the time and I need to be doing multiple things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my, my chef de cuisine, Evan, will remark oftentimes about how he thinks it's incredible that he and I can be in a quiet room together and he can be talking to me and I have the hardest time paying attention to him. He'll wow. be saying something completely valuable and I won't be paying any attention at all. And he's like, oh, okay, like... It's uh, a real I'll. skill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's like, that's impressive. Well, but then he'll <laughs> say, like, you know, and then conversely, we'll be on the line together. 50 things will be going on. Uh -huh. And I'm paying attention to every single one simultaneously. And he's just amazed by the fact that I'll turn my, you know, head and I'll say to him, a, a salad is being plated. 20 feet away from here and it's incorrect they forgot one ingredient on it make sure you go fix that before it goes out mm -hmm. and he's like I have no idea how how that works uh -huh. and the reason why he and I work so well together is he uh, you know and similarly to my business partner Matt you know my partner Matt is a very very kind of conventional um has a very very conventional workflow right like he he can sit down he can just knock out project one by one by one by one but mm -hmm. if i ask him to focus on 30 things at once he'll tell me he's like dude like one thing at a time man like just mm -hmm. uh, let me get through this and for me my brain just doesn't work that way so you traveled all the way through italy and probably many other places too mm -hmm. to try to create the menu for Kifiko. Uh, or i mean i think that's part of the inspiration of sure I read. yeah um how long have you been thinking about this restaurant Beyond the four years, was there you know, something you've been working on ten, for 10 years? B b beyond the four years it took to build out the restaurant. But tell us about the menu, its Jewish heritage, and what that means to you. And then talk about some of the foods. Maybe people maybe don't even know those ingredients or even those names. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so Cucina Ebreca is the cuisine that part of the menu is focused on. The, um, but not the whole menu. And the reason why I did part of the menu is because that's very much the way it's showcased now in Italy, uh, unless you go to the Jewish ghetto in Rome, mm -hmm. you won't see whole menus that are based on Cochina Ebreca. But what I'm trying to convey is the fact that Jewish, the Jewish diaspora has traveled and has migrated through so many different parts of the world that a lot of people don't give uh, credence to the fact that you know, certain dishes were you know, uh, developed 
in Jewish homes, Jewish neighborhoods, Jewish mm-hmm. um, places. And, you know, oftentimes you'll see something that's very commonplace. Like, for example, you'll see the supli al telefono in Rome, which is, you know, a fried rice ball, risotto ball with cheese on the inside. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, very commonplace uh, snack, you know, in restaurants, street food, all of that. Mm-hmm. And very rarely do people call out the fact that it's, you know, it's heritage, yeah. it's, it's, its origins are from Jewish cooking. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought that it would be interesting to have a menu that was like completely mixed, but then start calling out dishes that were very much kind it, of within that diaspora. On the menu, there were asterisks or something. They're Jewish stars. Jewish stars. That's right. Yeah, actually. I was asking my buddy, I was, uh, you know, like Star of David, kind of everywhere, um, you know, and clearly like figured out quickly. But there's also, you know, right after salad or um, antipasta. Pasta, yeah. There's a whole section. Well, so there, there, what we did was we removed the whole section and I started just integrating it into the whole menu. Okay, okay. So, so yes. there was a whole section at one point yes. uh, that was called Cucina Ebreca and I found that the guests were having a hard time knowing how to integrate that into their ordering so process. So you just pepper them out throughout. So we, 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 com- we integrated it back into the menu and so you'll see it peppered throughout the menu mm-hmm. and I thought that, th- and, and, and it actually has helped tremendously because, you know, although people still ask, you know, and there's still a blurb on the menu as to what the Jewish stars represent, mm-hmm. Um, you know, it allows people to understand how the menu should be ordered from in, uh-huh. in a more um, fluid way. <laughs> um, I just realized I called it the Star of David, but it's kind of like Sir David. Well, yeah, I mean, it is. It's very <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, delicious food, amazing. Um, and, and you think you're the only restaurant that's kind of, uh, I guess at the time when you made this section, it was the only restaurant maybe at the time that's, you know, particularly called out. I, I don't know. I have a hard time saying we're the only or mm-hmm. we're the first or anything like that. And I've made a point to say that in other articles, which is I don't know of other ones that do. Obviously, I know of other Italian restaurants that serve souply. I know of other Italian yeah. restaurants that serve, uh, you know, Cucciofi alla Giudia or, or something like that. Uh-huh. I, I just don't know another restaurant that calls out... Um, you know, Cucina Ebreca in the States. And, and that's just because nobody's brought it to my attention, right? I can't mm-hmm. possibly know. Uh, I know for a fact that we're not the only in the, in the world. There's a plethora of Cucina Ebreca restaurants in Italy and potentially in other places. What role does creativity play in how you're you know, presenting your food, how you're changing up the menu? I mean, I'm interested in all these conversations with uh, principals of, of you know, winemakers and even politicians and you know everyone, even some of the best entrepreneurs are super, super creative. Some some of the most creatives are often, as my friend Alonzo King says, some of the most uh, creative people uh, lack creativity because they've now narrowed what they're working on. Right. But what kind of creativity do you get to exemplify every day? You know, I'm in a world right now where I feel that creativity sometimes gets in the way of you serving the product that's going to be the best product. Mm -hmm. And I think that the best products sometimes need to have the, you know, quote unquote, creative parts stripped away. Hmm. And I guess what I'm saying is you need to have guardrails. And in order to give your guests the thing that they actually want, the thing they're going to enjoy the most, you need to give yourself some limitations to say, okay, great. I'm not going to 
try and showcase every technique I've ever learned on one mm. plate, right? Because mm. in a way, that's not actually super creative. What you're doing is you're taking every tool in your bag and you're throwing it at this, this uh, dish or this menu. Showing no restraint. Showing no restraint, exactly. And so I think that for me, where my creativity is today is I find two or three ingredients that I find really um, that are calling to me and usually those things have to do with seasonality uh, sometimes there'll be a pantry item that I really really want to use you know one thing will be for example like a um, a smoked anchovy salt what we'll do is mm. we'll take anchovies from the San Francisco Bay and we'll um, we'll cure them we'll smoke them over the wood fire over the hearth and then once they're completely smoked, we'll dehydrate them so they're dry Ooh. and naturally salty and smoky. And we'll, we'll buzz those up so they're a powder. And then we'll mix those with salt. Ah. And so now you have this kind of like salty, super umami flavored, beautiful ingredient. And now from that ingredient, I want to, uh, I want to come up with another dish, right? And so in that time, that's a pantry item, right? And, and there is no mm -hmm. seasonality there, right? That can last... I mean, there's the seasonality of anchovies, but once that product is made, we have it for, uh, for quite a while. So, for example, where we ended up showcasing it during this past season, which was citrus season, we made a beautiful citrus salad, and we seasoned that with a little bit of uh, anchovy salt, pepper flakes, olives, uh, a basil oil, and we made a vinegar from the previous citrus season, which mm. was made from some calamansies that we grew, right? Uh -huh. So there's two different kind of pantry items that came together with a seasonal item and when you look at the plate it's incredibly simple it's uh -huh. three or four different types of citrus cut up on yeah. a plate with some olives but for us there's a lot of thought and love and care put into the, those the sliced yeah. pieces of oh, citrus okay. so I think that's how creativity falls into what we do I think naturally you know you, you want to kind of do something that you think is going to wow people right and something that people in our industry everything's about instagram right like if you take a photo of something that ends up on instagram that's really good for your business yeah. and 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 there's an ego boost there as well and i think that a part of it is struggling and scaling back and saying hey like instagram cannot be necessarily the the you know, deciding factor on how I'm going to do this today. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and unfortunately, I feel like we have gotten into a place where, you know, um, Instagram is the arbiter of whether Particularly a restaurant food, huh? Yeah. I and think design is interior design as well. Well, I mean, think, food, really. think about especially interior design for for retail businesses, for restaurants and stuff like that. You know, there is the Instagrammable factor right and yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I would be completely lying if I didn't say we didn't take that into account as well like sure. hey where are people going to take the photo of themselves that's going to make it around but from a food standpoint and from a drink standpoint we try to minimize that as much as we can to give people what we think is going to be the most uh, soulful experience right and that's shown in dishes like our you know tagliatelle ragu which is a plate of brown food but hours and hours and hours uh -huh. go into the making of that dish we will roll out pasta 100 percent by hand there's no machinery involved whatsoever we do it on, with a wooden dowel on a on a, on that wooden table right over there in our Sweet. dining room and then the the ragu is going to be you know made from a whole veal that we get from rosati ranch and all of the um trimmings from all of our salumi from our salumeria and we make the ragu for seven eight hours and then that dish comes together and we finish it with a little bit of olive oil and 48 month parmigiano reggiano and it, like I said, it's a plate of brown food. But when you have it, it should transport you to being, you know, in Bologna, enjoying 
you know, mm. one of the most nuanced bowls of pasta you can imagine. And if we've done it right, then, then that's what the feeling we've evoked. I'm still coming back here like <laughs> tonight probably, or just like, I'll be like the last seating at the end of the bar, you know, just like, please add me, please. <laughs> uh, it's so good. I love how you articulate your, your craft. Um, we, we do these um, podcasts as, um, uh, it's just fun to, to memorialize and sort of historically document almost some of these people in, in, in a restaurateur who's doing something great and innovative and interesting and one of a kind. So I thank you for sitting down with me today. It's super cool. It's been my pleasure. And I'm going to ask you one last question. Sure. It was kind of sort of a pod snack. We don't try to do them too long. It's like, a, it's like a, your, one of your appetizers. I don't know. That's lame. Okay. But uh, the, uh, because I'm, uh, my daily grind is interior design, I always ask everybody, you know, what's your favorite room in your house and why? I would say my favorite room in my house right now is my daughter Elena's room. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think naturally that was already my favorite room when we bought the apartment. It was a sunroom and mm -hmm. it has the most amount of windows in it and, uh, you know, quite aptly, a lot of sun makes it in there. Mm -hmm. And our backyard has a lot of beautiful greenery in it. And, you know, at first, I, you know, before we were going to have a child, you know, I just thought this is a great place to kind of be creative and have great thoughts and, mm -hmm. and, and you know, feel. Mm -hmm. And then when we found out we were going to have a child, obviously, I mean, I don't live in a, you know, 32 bedroom mansion. I live in a mm -hmm. one bedroom apartment with a sunroom. So mm -hmm. my child was going to live in the sunroom. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I kept thinking to myself is like, what an amazing room to be, you know, to be born into and, and live in, in your early years, because I, I don't know whether it sounds kind of too new wavy or whatever, but in my mind, I was thinking, you know, she's going to have these incredible thoughts and these incredible uh, inspirations because of the sunlight and because mm -hmm. how everything hits her room. And I just, I love being in there because, you know, everything looks like her and smells like her in there. And uh, my girlfriend, Samia, and I, we just, I think, we've kind of created this little nest around her in there. And mm -hmm. so I, I enjoy being in that room the most. Right on. Well, you're a rock star, brother. <laughs> Thank Thanks, you man. so much. I yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers. <laughs>